0: We have been going through the Bible, and now uh, for the last ten months, we began looking at the Gospel at uh, Genesis and spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. And then, of course, we looked at the Gospels. And for the last couple of months, we've been looking at our role as the Church in the the Kingdom of God. And we are going to finish up this study through the Bible in the next four weeks. So, including today, there's four more messages: two in Hebrews, two in Revelation. Uh, And that's gonna get us right up to Thanksgiving because then it's Advent. And we're gonna be in our Advent season, which, I mean, four weeks till Thanksgiving. Nine weeks till Christmas, people. How many of y'all have done your shopping? All right, you should have because the way shipping is going, if you haven't ordered it, your kids ain't getting nothing. And uh, so our kids ain't getting nothing uh, we'll just, we'll, we'll get what we can get from Walmart and be done with it. But anyway, so the year's almost up and it's, it's amazing to think, man, we're, we're already coming up on November. November 1st is tomorrow. Uh, just two more months. we will be done with 2021 and begin 2022, uh, in January. And hopefully it just keeps getting better and better. And so the world gets a little better. But anyway, so we're going to, we're going to finish up, uh, in the next couple weeks, but today we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. Now, The book of Hebrews is a lot like the book of Romans in that it is filled with a lot of truth and a lot of theology and a lot of wonderful doctrine that we're probably going to go back and crawl through. It, and starting in the first of the year, you know, some of these sections I've just blown through like Romans, like Hebrew. Some of these ones I've skipped over. I've already made notes uh, for my next year's preaching calendar. Spend more time uh, here. You know, yes, I got through the whole Bible in 12 months. Uh, we will really, you know, 10 and a half months. Uh, we'll be done with it. Uh, but I'd miss those times where I took 18 months to go through the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to really dive into some of these scriptures. But it's filled with with incredible doctrine incredible theology. It gives us a lot of truth about what the gospel does in the life of a believer. But there's a lot that we don't know about the book of Hebrews. First of all, we don't know who the human writer of the book of Hebrews is. There's There's debates online, there's been books written about who the author is, there's been all kinds of things where people are diving in trying to prove who the writer of the book of Hebrews is. A lot of people think it's the Apostle Paul uh, because of his knowledge of the the law and the, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Some think it's maybe Apollos or Barnabas. A lot of people think it's Peter because the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about how he knew the apostles and was familiar with the work of Jesus while he was on earth. But the truth is, it doesn't matter who the human writer is because the author of the book of Hebrews is God. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, he says all scripture... Is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. The phrase there, inspired by God, is the Greek word anastas. And it literally means God-inspired, but it's it's made up of two different Greek words. The first one is theos, which means God, and neo, which means to be breathed by. So the, the Bible we have is not a collection of good thoughts about God. It's not man's opinion about God. It is God's word that he has breathed into human instruments, then told them to write down what they wrote. So when we read For instance, we read the letters to the Corinthian church or the Philippian church. We're not reading the words of Paul. We're reading the words that God told Paul to write. This is God's eternal word. It always has been and it always will be. And here's the thing. The Bible says that God's word is eternal. God's word is preserved. So if you don't enjoy reading the Bible on earth, you're going to have a real tough time in heaven and the next earth. Well, that's all we got. And that's all we need is God's eternal word. So the human writer, the instrument God used to give us these words isn't important. What's important is we know that these are God's words to us. We also don't know who the letter was written to. We know what it was written to Hebrew believers or Jewish believers. Christians Jewish people who had been raised in Judaism, had learned the first five books of the Bible, had memorized the, the scripture they were supposed to memorize as good Jewish children, but had rejected their Jewish religion and accepted Christ as their Savior, had had recognized and understood the truth that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was payment for their sin, and so they had turned from their religion and accepted Christ as their Savior. We know that he's writing to Jewish believers. We also know that Jewish believers are struggling in their faith. They're suffering persecution. They're being uh, punished for or persecuted for their faith in Jesus from the Jewish religion, from their friends and family who are still Jewish. They're, they're rejecting them and hurting them and persecuting them. The Romans are persecuting them. So we know that this, this group of believers is suffering because of their faith in Christ. And a lot of them, are turning from their faith. Maybe they're turning back to their Judaism. because, like, you know what? It was easier when I was following the Jewish religion. At least my parents would talk to me. These my friends would have something. And man, it's just so hard to follow you. So I'm going to go back to my Jewish religion. Or they were rejecting everything altogether. And so the writer here is, is writing to these Jewish believers who are surf, suffering persecution. And he's writing for a purpose the purpose of the letter is the, the writer is trying to strengthen the faith of these believers by comparing and contrasting Jesus and the other things they're putting their faith in specifically their old religion he compares uh, Jesus he, he compares Jesus to the angels and the torah That they would have known. So we know that whoever these believers are, they have a firm, or the writer assumes they have a firm understanding of the, the Torah, the Jewish religion. They understand the history of Israel, they understand the importance of some of these characters. And so he compares Jesus to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to angels who are seen in the Old Testament who would give the Word of God. To the people, he compares Jesus to Moses and the promised land, to to the priests in the Levitical priesthood, even to the priest Melchizedek and the, the sacrifices that Israel would offer to God. And he uses these comparisons to elevate Jesus. To show that despite how cherished these things were and how how much the the people of Israel revered these things, they revered Moses, they revered Abraham, they revered all these, these rites and rituals, that yes, those things were okay, but Jesus is better than all of them. Jesus is greater than anything they could put their faith in. He's better than all the things that they hold as sacred. And he also uses these comparisons to challenge them to remain faithful to Jesus by giving warnings about their losing faith. And he uses the Old Testament uh, history. He says, hey, Jesus is better than Moses, and look what Moses did. But Moses, the nation of Israel, rejected God, and look what happened. So you stay faithful to God or this can happen as well. So he's using it to elevate Jesus and to to help them stay faithful to Jesus. And in chapter three, he compares Jesus to Moses as he led the nation of Israel out of the wilderness and to the promised land. Now we got to remember the story, of course, Israel had been in slavery to Egypt for over 400 years. God raises up Moses to go before Pharaoh and, and say, God of, the God of Israel has declared to let his people go that they may go and serve him. And of course, Pharaoh says no. And we know the story. The, God sends the 10 plagues to to weaken the heart of Pharaoh and to destroy uh, Egypt's uh, faith in their false gods. He turns the river to blood, sends locusts and all this stuff. And then finally... He sends the, the death of the firstborn plague. And, of course, we know the story of Passover where the, the nation of Israel, every family, every household, they, they get a perfect lamb. They kill that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. And then, of course, they have a feast and wonderful uh, picture of Jesus here. And then when the death angel passed through, when he saw the blood... He passed over that household and spared those, whoever was in that, the firstborn in that household. And so the next morning, everybody wakes up and every firstborn in the nation of Israel, they're alive and safe and happy and healthy. But every household in Egypt has suffered a huge, tremendous loss. And God breaks the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, get out, take whatever you want and get out. And they leave, of course. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart and he chases after them and they have to cross through the Red Sea and God parts the Red Sea for them and destroys the nation of it, the nation of Egypt and frees the nation of, e- of Israel and then goes to the Mount Sinai and gets the Ten Commandments and all this stuff. And then Moses is leading them to the promised land, the land he had promised to Abraham centuries before. The land that he says flows with milk and honey. Now, the promised land, <coughs> a lot of people like to compare the promised land to heaven for us. It's not what it is. You know why? Because there were still enemies in the promised land. They were going to get this land. It was supposed to be awesome, but they were still going to have to kick out some enemies. enemies. They were going to have problems and struggles and, 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 pro- and difficulties they had to go through. So the promised land is not a picture of heaven The promised land is a picture of a life dedicated to serving God. Yeah, there's problems, but God's there for you. Yeah, there's enemies, but God fights your battles. And it was supposed to be a place of rest for the nation of Israel, but it wasn't their final home, and it wasn't perfect. But because the generation that came out of Egypt, the generation that saw God send the plagues on Egypt, the generation that experienced the Passover, the generation that witnessed the crossing the Red Sea on dry ground and turned around to see God destroy the The nation of Egypt, the generation that saw God give water out of a rock and manna from heaven, the generation that saw those miracles because they rebelled against God and they rebelled against Moses, they never got to the promised land. They never experienced the rest that God had promised them. So they spent 40 years, they spent their entire lives wandering the desert, still fighting. They still had battles in the desert they still had hardships in the desert. They had all this stuff that they had to go through and endure and never got to experience God's rest. And so they missed the promised rest from God. And so chapter four, the writer, he uses this story to give us today, because again, yes, the writer was writing to a group of Jewish believers back in the first century but because it's the eternal word of God it's for us today so the writer is using this story to warn us today about the dangers of turning from God and losing the promises that he has given us so look in your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 4 we're going to start reading in verse number 1 he says let us therefore now again Whenever you see the word therefore, you've got to go back and find out what it's there for. Why is it there? Because he's just talked about Israel rejecting God in the wilderness and being condemned to wander the wilderness. So he goes, because they did this, and because this happened, therefore, fear, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore, it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it it was first preached, enter not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, for if Jesus had given them rest that he would not be afraid, Oh, that he would not have afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Anyone guess what we're talking about this morning? Resting. So I'm going to play some soft music. We're going to lower the lights. We're going to take a nap. All right? Is that okay with y'all? Amen. I know Parker says amen. But anyway, this is an incredible promise God has given us. God says... If you remain faithful to me, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest for your weary soul. Now, rest is something we all want. And it's probably something most of us need. We live in a culture that is chronically overworked. In our culture, we look at being busy as a virtue. The busier you are, the more important you are, the more valuable your time is. And every study that's ever been done shows that being overworked, being busy, is bad for you. It's bad for your health, it's bad for your relationships, it's bad for your mental state. But there's a reason that so many of us are driven to overwork. We, we overwork because that's how we provide for ourselves. You you work a job to pay your bills, to pay your mortgage and, and pay your car payment and pay your insurance and buy food and, and have electricity. And, and in today's culture, you gotta have water and Wi-Fi and cable and you gotta pay your Netflix bill and your Amazon bill and your Hulu bill. And, and you work to do all this stuff and there's nothing wrong with that. But we think if I work more, Then I'll earn more that I can get more. And I can get a bigger house. And people will think, man, look at how good their house is. I can get a nicer car. People think, man, look how nice their car is. And we can get more stuff. And so we get a bigger TV to watch all those streaming services. And look, I'm not preaching against streaming services. I have so many. I I have one that I have just for football season. Just so I can watch football games till 2 in the morning. And go to bed crying in my sleep. I did that. I did that last night. So I need rest. Amen. But we think, you know, if I work more, I get more, I'll earn more, I'll be able to buy more, and people will think more of me. And we, we overwork to get more stuff for ourselves. You know, work is how we provide. And so we enjoy the privileges we enjoy is in direct proportion to how hard we work. But work is sometimes how we establish our identity. You know, we think that the nature of our work determines our worth. When you meet someone new for the first time, the first question you ask is, hey, what's your name? You know what the second question is? What do you do? Hey, I'm Sean, what's your name? Oh, great, what do you do for a living? Because what you do for a living is how we determine how valuable you are, how important you are. And so sometimes we make, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a pizza delivery guy. I'm a food distribution specialist. You know, we make up all these things to make ourselves feel better. You know, a recent Wall Street Journal article said that most people inflate the number of hours they work a week, not the money they make, but how much they work so they can appear to be more in demand. Sometimes we're driven to overwork because we're trying to please other people. I don't want to let people down. I got to work harder and and longer hours to please my boss or to to please this person so that I, I don't let them down. Usually, and when we are tired, when we feel overwhelmed, something has to go. You know what the first thing to go in the life of a believer is when they feel tired and overwhelmed? Their walk with God. Got to work more, but I don't have time to read my Bible. Got to work harder so I don't have time to pray. Got to do this so I don't have time to do this. With I, I can't go to worship service because I got I to work on Sunday. And look, I understand. Sometimes you got to work on Sunday. Sometimes your ox is in a ditch. I get it. Some of y'all's ox is always... It's time to, if your ox is always in a ditch, it's time to get a new ox. All right? If that, your ox is always in a ditch, get a new ox. But I understand sometimes you got to, you can't avoid it, but not all the time. And so, but that's what goes. It's like, well, I, gotta t- I can't go to church on Sunday because I'm so busy during the week doing other stuff. This is the only day I have to get stuff caught up with. And so our worship service suffers. Our service for God suffers. That was the issue that the writer of the book of Hebrews is getting to. When we fail to rest we end up turning our back on God. Look at verse nine again. There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. There is a rest for the people of God that is promised to us. It's the same thing we see in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon me and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now I know what you're thinking, man, pastor, last week you had a short message and you're already over that. That short message was just get to work. Get to work, you know, going to church, get to work serving God, get to work. And now you're saying we need to rest. Which is it? It's both. You need to get busy serving God. And get busy resting so you can serve God. See, the rest that God is offering us, it's not what we think of rest. When I talk about we need to take some rest, most of us think, well, God's promising me to lay on the beach and and just read books all day and take a nap on the beach. That's part of it. That's the part I love, amen? That's my favorite part. But that's not really the only thing he's getting to. Rest is crucial To the Christian life. Dallas Willard, he's a theologian. He says that most people, when they become a believer, they jump straight to the busy part of Christianity and skip the rest that God has promised us. Until you learn to rest properly in Christ, all your work for Jesus is going to be off. The most mature believers are not the ones who are working the hardest, but the ones who have learned to rest. So the writer of Hebrews, he ties the rest that Jesus offers to the Old Testament concept of the Sabbath. And Moses explains the purpose of the Sabbath in two places. We're going to look at only one of them, Exodus 20. uh, Moses here, receiving the Ten Commandments from God, he says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or your sojourner who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and that all is therein, and on the seventh day rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it whole. God, it's a simple concept. that look, the Sabbath, the principle of Sabbath was created in the beginning. When God created everything, six days, and God, who does not need to rest God doesn't get tired Can we, we we all understand that God isn't up in heaven going oh man I need more coffee I think he should be with us going I need I need something else to deal with these people I can't handle it I need a nap God doesn't get tired not we'll talk about Jesus on earth getting tired Jesus napped we're gonna nap but you know God doesn't get tired so God didn't need to rest he was given a principle of rest, but the law of the Sabbath rest isn't given here until Exodus. So it's a simple concept. God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. So you work real hard for six days, but take the seventh day off, take the, a Sabbath day off. And it's not just, hey, you take a Sabbath day off. It's, hey, everything in your house, all the work in your house shuts down for a day. Nobody's working. You're not, your kids aren't working. Your servants aren't working. You're, you know, Someone's passing through and they're not working. Everybody take some time and rest. Now, I know Connor's here listening going, huh, so there's one day a week when my dad says to load the dishwasher, I can say no, no. <laughs> it's not what I'm saying. We'll get to that. But why did God institute this? Because the principle was there. But why give the law? God wanted to remind us that he, not us, he is the point of our lives. God did not create you to accomplish something. God didn't create you to make money. God didn't create you to make a name for yourself. God didn't create you to, so you could get some great thing done. God created you so you could be in a love relationship with him. God created you for fellowship. The pain of life, the stress of life, the busyness of life makes us forget that. We forget that we were created to love God to fellowship with God, to enjoy his love for us. And forgetting that causes pain. We weren't created for a job. We weren't created for a family to get stuff, to be well-known or to be well-liked. We were created for God. So God says, take a day off to focus and look at and remember the fact that you were created to spend time with me. Another reason God wants us to take a Sabbath rest is rest reminds us that God is the provider of our lives. In in ancient Israel, the Sabbath day was inconvenient. Their life was lived literally day to day. Every day they had to go get water. Every day they had to go work the fields. You couldn't just take a day off and say, hey, Nobody do anything today. Let the fields go. Let the cows go. Don't worry about anything. Because every day you had a job to do. And sometimes your survival was day to day. And remember, when God gives them the law of the Sabbath, every day, they weren't farmers yet. They were were nomads. They were scavengers. So every day they had to get up and find food. Now, God provided them food every day with, you know, honeycomb cereal every morning. For breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I love honeycomb, but I admit I probably get sick of that after a while. But God provided. So all they had to do to eat for the day was to go out, get the food, and eat. But they couldn't, you couldn't go get up on Monday and say, you know what, I don't, I wanna sleep late every day this week. So I'm gonna get a bunch of manna. Take me through the week and get all your manna. and say, well, I gotta follow, because you, you could get all the manna you wanted, put it in your house, put it in your cabin, put it in your freezer, whatever. And have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. When you got up the next day for breakfast, it'd be rotten. Because God was teaching them. Every day you have to rely on me. You have to come to me and get your daily bread. But every day was survival. So if you didn't get up and get the food that day, you starved that day. If you didn't get water, you didn't get water that day. And so every, the Sabbath day was inconvenient. Where you had to say, okay, I, I can't work my field. I can't gather food. I can't get water. I have to take time and do nothing. So cutting a day out of your productivity could be the, the difference of life and death. And here's the thing. No other culture did this. The Egyptians weren't taking a day off. They were working every seven days a week. So nobody else did this. But God commanded his people to do this because he wanted to remind them that he was the one providing for them. Take a day and don't work, don't don't do anything on your farm, don't do anything for you. Let it all go away for a day because it's not you that's providing your, your meal. It's not you that's providing for yourself. I am providing for you. Not only that, but rest reminds us that God is the savior of our lives. You know, God wants us to take some time and to focus on and remember that our greatest need is deliverance from sin. Our greatest need is salvation from sin and deliverance from death and hell and the grave and that God and God only provided the way for us to earn that, to to get, not earn, sorry. Don't wanna say that. God provided the only way for us to receive salvation. God has accomplished it all by himself. When God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, did Israel do anything to part the Red Sea? No. They stood there and watched it get parted. Did they do anything to get water from the rock besides complain? No. God gave the water from the rock. Did they do anything to to make the manna fall from heaven? No. God did all of it. If you're saved this morning and you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you know you have a home in heaven, you did nothing to earn it. Nothing. Jesus, God, became flesh, lived a sinless life because you couldn't. Jesus died a death on the cross that you should have died. He took your sin and gave you his righteousness. He rose from the grave on his own and all you did to get any of it is say, God, I'm a sinner. I accept your payment of death, burial, and resurrection on the cross as payment for my sin. I accept what you did for me. You didn't earn it. You didn't do nothing for it. And so the Sabbath day was to remind us, God... You did everything needed for me to have salvation. God brought Israel out of Egypt. He provided everything for them. And so God wants us to reflect on the Sabbath that he is the point of our life. He is the provider for our life and he is the savior of our life. So according to the writer of Hebrews, the Sabbath was just a, a shadow that pointed us to Christ. So let's look back at verse number eight. Chapter four, verse eight. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remained therefore a rest of the people of God, for he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. So the Sabbath that Moses and Joshua instituted did not bring ultimate rest. So Jesus... The writer here says, Jesus is the one who is our ultimate rest. So right now I've got eight minutes before I want to be done. So luckily, my points are pretty quick. So we're going to look at three ways that Christ became our rest. Three things that if you can achieve them through Christ, you can have true rest from God. First thing we need to understand that the Sabbath brings us, the Sabbath teaches us is Christ is my righteousness. The ultimate way that Christ is our Sabbath is that he alone is the one that saves us. Like Israel, Jesus did all the work. He he took our sin, he took our sorrow, and he made them his own. He bore our burdens and he suffered and died for us alone. As God's children, He partners with us to fulfill his work to build his kingdom on earth. But we don't partner with him for salvation. He did all of it. And so the rest that God offers us is God says, you can rest from trying to earn your own righteousness because you can't. You can can stop trying to earn my favor because you never will, because it's freely given. He did all of it for us. That's why Jesus said when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't say, I started it for you. He said, I've done it all for you. All you do is accept my gift of salvation. That gives us rest because we don't have the pressure to save ourselves, to earn favor or earn righteousness from God, it's freely given because we never could earn it. We are freely given his righteousness through his work. Second reason that we can find rest here is not only is Christ my righteousness, but Christ is my identity. Through salvation, Jesus gives us a new identity in him, we are no longer strangers of God. We are no longer orphans. We are no longer enemies of God. We are now sons and daughters of God. We are now a new creature. We are loved, we are accepted, we are forgiven, and we are cherished by God. The identity God gives us in him is better than any identity you can get from a job, from a relationship, from status, from anything this world has to offer. Because yeah, the world may look at you, oh man, you're a, a powerful person or you're a, a great worker, or you're this or that. But God looks at you and says, you know what, it doesn't matter what you are to them because to me, you're a cherished child. You are loved and you are accepted. In Christ, we don't have to work to have an identity, to make us feel accepted by others. We have an identity that is accepted by God. And it's given to us as salvation. You know, after the fall, the first thing Adam and Eve did was cover themselves with leaves. Before they were naked and unashamed. Now they're covering themselves and they experience shame and regret and sorrow. They feel shame, they feel unworthy, and they feel the need to cover themselves to get a new identity. And that's what we do outside of God. Work becomes a way to give us a sense of significance. The gospel says you have a new identity in Christ. We are a chosen son or daughter. And he has a plan for you in his kingdom. And this is, your, this is your identity that God gives you isn't one you work for or earn. It is freely given by God the Father. Third thing we can see through the Sabbath is Christ is my security. God said to Israel, since I rescued you as helpless slaves, I will now take care of you as beloved son, sons. Sons. And God wants us to take some time and reflect on that. So God says, look, I I rescued you and I provided for you and I did everything for you. When you were a worthless slave to the world and to everything else, and now you are my child, now I have rescued you. And so if I treated you well then, if I provided for you then, how much more will I provide for you now? You know, the early church, they shifted the Sabbath, to Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day. Used to be Saturday because Sunday was the first day of the week. Saturday was the last day of the week. Then they shifted it to Sunday. Now, they did this because Sunday was the day that Jesus resurrected and they felt that that the day commemorated their salvation so they would honor that. But on that day, they were to reflect on the same thing the nation of Israel was supposed to reflect on. If God didn't spare his son to save us, if God willingly and freely sacrificed his only begotten son to save your eternal soul, how much more is he gonna take care of you now that you're a child of his? God said, look, I gave my son for you to purchase you out of slavery. Now you're my child. I'll provide everything for you. I'll take care of you. See, the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ. He is my righteousness. He is my identity. And he is my security. But just because the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ doesn't mean that we are to stop practicing the principle of the Sabbath. In creation, if you look at the creation of the world, God established a rhythm of work and rest. We work, we rest. A day of rest is not because there's nothing else to do. Look, I, I personally Monday's my, my day off. I take off from, from and you know don't come to, t- to the office and I kind of rest and relax. and I kind of use it as my Sabbath day. There's a lot of Mondays. I'm at home, and April's like, let's just lay around and do nothing all day." And I'm thinking, I can't. I gotta mow the grass or I gotta, I still have a wall in my basement I haven't put, I took down to fix the floor and I haven't put back up in six months. I got stuff to do. So a Sabbath day isn't I got nothing to do, so I'm just gonna relax. The Sabbath is is a a principle. It's not just a one day a week we do, it is a principle that we use and live by throughout our lives. So let me let me give you a few ways that you can institute this principle of sabbath rest in your life to enjoy the rest that God has for you. First thing, one take one day a week for rest, renewal and relationships. This is a day to be rather than to do. To focus on God, but also to focus on your relationships. The Old Testament Sabbath ritual, I read a book called Sabbath Rest. It was by, it was written just a few years ago, but this man, he, he went into historical context. He's a believer. He went into historical context and showed what a Sabbath day was like for a typical Jewish family. The father would get up early and he would make everybody breakfast. He didn't clean it, but he would make everybody breakfast. And so I would get up, and Dad would have breakfast made for him, and, you know, I don't know, pancakes and waffles and bacon, no bacon, bad then, but good now, you can have bacon now. But he'd make a big breakfast, and so everybody would get up, and they'd have a wonderful breakfast together, and then after breakfast, Dad would take some time, and he would spend his time alone with God, praying, meditating on Scripture, just reconnecting with God, but then he made sure he had time alone with every child in the house. So every kid, he would would have special time with just them. Whatever, playing games, taking a walk and talking, whatever. But he had, I'm going to spend this time with my son and this time with my daughter and this time with that child. And he spent time with everybody until after dinner. Then after dinner, it was him and his wife's time. I'm going to have time with my wife, just me and her. The kids are gone. And he gets into detail and says this was typically the day that the husband and wife spent time together. It was like the scheduled time. Uh, But it was was a special thing that I'm going to take some time. I'm going to ignore my kids, which you need to, but I spent time with them. I'm going to give all my attention to my spouse. That was the Sabbath day. It was, it was a day to, yeah, he worshiped God. Yes, he spent time with God, but he reconnected with everybody in his family. Now, it doesn't have to be a Sunday, but we do need to have a day of the week where we focus on God and focus on our family. And public worship should be part of it because your relationship with God is central to your life. But it should also be a day where you say, okay, we're gonna go to church, we're gonna worship, but now we're gonna... We're going to spend time with family, go on a picnic. And look, if your kids like, they like watching football, great, lucky you. I'm going to watch some football with my kids. I'm going to spend some time with, I'm going to spend some special time with just me and my wife. Do things you enjoy. And when we do this, God promises to multiply our efforts on the other days. I can't take a day and just spend it with my wife and kids. I got to get the grass mode. Honor the Sabbath rest and God will give. He won't give you more time, but it'll seem like he gives you more time the rest of the week. Second thing to do to live this uh, uh, Sabbath rest life is be faithful to your tithes and offerings. Hear me out. I know. Talking about money again. Yeah, I am. But tithing is an application of the Sabbath principle. Why? How many of you have 10% of your income you can just get rid of and be fine? I don't. I don't think most of you do. Most of us, we need 100% of our, of our money. We need all of it. And so to take our, we live paycheck to paycheck and data. And so to take our finance, and say, God, you gave me all of it. But I'm going to take 10% of it and give it back to you and trust you to help me live on the 90% and provide for me on the 90%. It is showing God, God, you are my security. You don't do it because you have an extra 10% in your bank account. You do it because you are declaring that God is your provider and you trust him to take the 90% and multiply it for his honor and glory. Third thing you can do, get good sleep. Can I get an amen? Y'all need to sleep. I'm going to give you my favorite Bible passage, Psalms 127. Except the Lord build the house, those who build it labor in vain. Except the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain for you to rise up early, to stay up late, to eat of the bread of hard toil. He gives sleep to his beloved. According to this verse, the sign, a sign, that you are loved by God is a good night's sleep. How many of y'all feel loved by God this morning? I don't, I went to bed at two o'clock in the morning and cried myself to sleep. Got up early and thought, I just want to watch it on Facebook. Oh, I can't watch it on Facebook, I've got to do it. But a, a sign of God's love for you is good sleep, good rest. But that goes against what we think because if you're asleep, who's watching the city? If you're asleep, who's building the house? David says, God is. God's watching the city for you. God's building the house for you. So all you have to do is sleep. You know, before 1879, most Americans got 11 hours of sleep a night. 11 hours. You know why? Because Thomas Edison had invented a stupid light bulb. And so when the sun went down, so did you. Because were, why stay up? You, there's no TV to watch, there's nothing to do, so go to bed but then we got light bulbs and TVs and all kinds of stuff and now we can stay up all, we can get more done because we have artificial light and we can watch all kinds of stuff and entertain ourselves, but we've lost sleep. Get more sleep. Not right now, in a minute. Fourth thing, practice daily Sabbath. Every day, take some time to unplug and refocus yourself. In the morning, before you get going, because your day is going to get crazy, I promise you. Take some time, say, God, I'm going, to, I'm going to take some time. If it's five minutes, I'm going to listen to a devotion. I'm going to listen to scripture. I'm just going to pray and meditate and say, God, help me today. Be with me today. Middle of the day, when you're about to pull your hair out because your coworkers are stupid and you don't know what to do and your boss is on your back and, y'all oh, take some time and refocus. And I know not all of you can do this because you got jobs. Take a nap. Jesus took naps. Be like Jesus, all right? We criticize, like the, in, in South American countries, they, they have the, the, uh, the siesta. After lunch, they'll take some time and they'll nap. We think, oh, lazy bums. They're more healthy than us because they take some time to nap. Studies have shown if you take a 30-minute nap a day, 30 minutes, don't like some people I know sitting on the front row, get in your pajamas under the covers, turn the lights off, put a mask on and go to sleep for six hours. That's not a nap, that's sleeping. But a 30-minute or you know 20 to 30-minute nap refreshes you, increases your brain activity, and lets you think better. So, so look, if your boss, say, well, my boss will never let me do that. Go to your boss and say, look, give me, give me a month and let me take a 20-minute nap, 30-minute nap every day and if my productivity fails, then fire me. And if he does it, I'm sorry, that was bad advice. <laughs> but if you can, take a nap. Jesus nap, be like Jesus. Take some naps. Another way to practice Sabbath, Sabbath lifestyle is take yearly vacations. If you can take more, great. But at least have time where you take a yearly vacation. In the Bible, Jesus commanded his people to take time off to remind themselves that they weren't the ones doing the work. Mark 6, he says, Then he said to them, talking to his disciples, his apostles, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So Jesus and the apostles are ministering and people are coming and going. Their life is busy and they got so much to do. And it's not like people suddenly stop coming. People are in line waiting to be served by Jesus and the apostles. And you know what Jesus said? Let's take a vacation. Let's get away from work for a while. Let's go. People still needed to be blessed, but he goes, look, you're going to burn yourself out. And you're not the one doing the work anyway, so let's take some time and rest. Jesus knew that there was time to stop; that they needed to, they needed to take take time to stop and prioritize rest and time with God to reflect on the fact that God is the one that does the work. Now, I know a lot of us are like, "Yule vacations." I can't even. I'm not saying go to Disney World or blow half a million dollars on a vacation that you can't afford. If you can't afford to go anywhere. Here's a good idea, tell people you're going somewhere and just unplug your phone. We're going on vacation. We're gonna be in Europe for a week and you're not gonna be able to reach us. And then just stay home. Just disconnect from everything. But we, me and April, we've learned, and we learned, God told us this years ago, we need time, just us, and we need time with our family, with our kids, where we, we pull away from everything, we say, look, I love the church. I love the people. But I'm going to snap if I don't get away. So we're going to go away and we're going to rest and we're going to do nothing. But my, my idea of Sabbath rest on a yearly occasion is sitting on a beach and doing nothing. That doesn't sound appealing to you. I don't know why. Some of you like to go and do all kinds of stuff. When I'm, when I'm away, I want to do nothing. Let there be a lifeguard so the kids can, if they drown, they'll take care of them. I can just nothing. That's what I like. But we, need, whatever your time of rest is, every year, if you can, again, multiple times you do it, but have some time where you say, okay, I've worked all this time. I'm going to separate. I'm going I'm to reconnect with my family because one day a week is okay, but I need some more time with my family. I'm going to reconnect with God where I, I don't have to worry about, I don't got to get up early go to work so I can, I can sleep late and still spend time with Jesus. And I'm going to do this and just take some time to unplug and focus on your relationships and on yourself. You know, in Acts chapter 1, God tells us, his apostles, he says, "I'm I'm going to heaven. Your job is to go to Jerusalem and Judea. And your job is to get the gospel to the entire world. And before he told him to do that, you know what he told him to do? Before you start, go back and take some time off. Wait for me to tell you when to go you got a great task ahead of you. Rest before you do it. Take some time before you do it. The hardest way to live is the way most religious people live. Instead of surrendering to Jesus, they work to please him. Instead of trusting Jesus, they try to adopt a religious checklist of things they have to do to keep God happy. They become burdened and busy, and they don't enjoy the benefit of rest that comes to from being fully committed to God. God offers rest. We just have to live in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,